It's January the 11th, 2021, just 11 days into the new year. And how many of you all, like me, already want a refund for 2021? Is that you guys? Where's the line for this refund? All right. Nonetheless, we're going to keep with our mission. We're going to keep with our passion. And we're going to keep taking care of people despite the craziness that's going on because it's our calling. We've got this job to do. It should be our passion. And because people need help. And one of the ways that people need help is helping them through this crazy, horrific opioid epidemic. I'm honored that in April, I'm going to lead a lecture for Texas A&M University Opioid Task Force. And we're calling the attention to opioid use in pregnancy and which medication-assisted treatments are accepted and which ones have evolving data to show that they actually can be used, but with some more caution, specifically naltrexone. So we're going to get into that in just a minute. But we're going to focus on a pretty dark, pretty deep topic here, which is the opioid epidemic, because it's real. I actually have a physician friend who lost his license because of an opioid issue, and that was affecting his practice. So this can affect everybody. Get rid of stereotypes, get rid of preconceived notions. I've taken care of elderly women on the gynecology side addicted to opioids, and of course, the very young adolescent who's tried heroin for the first time and is now hooked. So we're going to cover the opioid epidemic, specifically talking about opioid use disorder in pregnancy. Data from the CDC from 2018 to 2019 is pretty depressing and pretty shocking. According to the CDC, in that year time frame, 130 people plus a day, that's a day, died of opioid-related drug overdose in the U.S. Every day, 130 plus individuals gone because of this drug and this addiction. Isn't that crazy? Also, according to the CDC, between that time frame, again, 2018 to 2019, over 47,000 people died from overdosing on an opioid. The overall number of opioid use in the U.S. in 2018 to 2019, specifically heroin, was 800,000. That's just 200,000 shy of a million. And speaking about the millions, 2 million people, 2 million misused prescription opioids for the first time in that time frame. What is going on? I mean, this is nuts. This is why in 2017, the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services declared the opioid epidemic a public health emergency. Pregnancy is not an immune state for this condition. Pregnant women are using opioids in a way that is paralleling the general population. In Texas, drug overdose was the leading cause of accidental maternal mortality between 2012 and 2015, with opioids involved in the majority of these deaths at 58%. Now, we've learned some things from that time period, but opioids obviously are still a real problem. In Texas, neonatal abstinence syndrome more than doubled between those time frames of 1.3 cases per thousand in 2008 to 2.5 cases per thousand in 2017. And in the U.S. as a whole, every 15 minutes in the U.S., think about this, every 15 minutes in this country, one baby is born suffering from opioid withdrawal. 
So here's your first clinical pearl. Opioid use has increased among pregnant women just as it has increased across the U.S. in the general population. According to 2019 self-reported data, about 7% of women reported using prescription opioids during pregnancy, with an estimated 14 to 22% of women filling an opioid prescription during that index pregnancy. So once again, they either use a prescription medication from somebody else, or in 14 to 22% of the cases, they actually were given an opioid during pregnancy. Now, I know we have new restrictions in place just starting this year, but these numbers are way too high. Now, of these, one in five reported misuse of prescription opioids that's getting them from a non-healthcare source or using them for recreation. And remember, we're talking about specifically in pregnancy. The CDC's Division of Reproductive Health is tasked with reducing opioid misuse during pregnancy, as well as opioid-related harms for women, infants, and children. ACOG, remember, does recommend universal screening starting at the first prenatal visit using a validated verbal screening tool, which is preferable to urine testing. We're going to get into urine testing in just a minute. But if the question is, does ACOG recommend us looking for this? The answer is yes. But how is the specific caveat? It does not like, it does not recommend urine testing because as ACOG states it, you know, we're not the police. We're there to take care of people. Now, there may be legal issues involved, but the universal screening mechanism of choice, the preferred by the college, is verbal screening as opposed to urine screening. If a woman screens positive by verbal screen, then ACOG recommends a brief intervention, which is just a conversation, some feedback or advice, and referral to a treatment center. Now, remember, we can't mandate that they get treated, even though there may be some state specifics, but this is just to identify the problem and hopefully put the patient into a medical-assisted treatment plan if she desires. Now, we just mentioned verbal screening for opioid use disorder, OUD. But what about urine drug screening? Well, remember, this is not supported by ACOG. Now, this is for screening. ACOG has a different issue about checking for urine tox if there is a maternal need for it. In other words, severe preeclampsia that just doesn't look right or a patient is altered and we just don't know what's going on. That's for diagnostics. Remember, we're talking about universal verbal screening versus universal urine drug screening. So ACOG has that distinction. If you suspect that a medical condition is being impacted by an illicit substance, then that's part of your diagnostic workup, and that's okay. But ACOG does not favor routine urine drug screening for opioids, and that's controversial, and here's why. A positive urine drug test is not in itself diagnostic of an opioid use disorder or of its severity. It only assesses for current or recent substance use, so a negative test does not rule out sporadic use. Also, it may not detect synthetic opioids, some benzos, and some designer drugs. False positive test results can occur with some immune assay testing, and there's legal consequences that can be devastating to the patient and her family, especially if it's a false positive test. And the most important issue is that routine urine drug screening may actually deter women from getting prenatal care, and that's the last thing that we want to do. Okay, now get ready to feel a little uncomfortable because this is touchy-feely stuff that makes everybody kind of on edge, and there's no real answer to this. Is substance use in pregnancy a crime? 
Well, Tennessee is the only state with a statute that specifically makes it a crime to use drugs while pregnant. Alabama and South Carolina have high courts that have interpreted existing child endangerment and chemical endangerment statutes to allow prosecution of drug-using pregnant women and new mothers. Now, here's your clinical pearl. 23 states and the District of Columbia consider substance use during pregnancy to be child abuse under civil child welfare statutes. Now, this changes quickly, so I would direct you to the Gutmature Institute because they do have a fantastic table and an interactive map of the legalities involved regarding illicit substances in pregnancy. And you can find that at gutchamer.org slash substance use during pregnancy. Patients who have used opioids in the first trimester, either by prescription and not abused or as an abused recreational drug, often have concerns about birth defects. Well, do opioids in early pregnancy cause birth defects? Well, there was one retrospective study that observed an increased risk of severe birth defects with prescribed opioids used in the month before pregnancy or during the first trimester. Another observational study found a possible association between the use of opioids in the first trimester and neural tube defects. However, there's a lot of confounding here because there tends to be other risk-taking behavior and other substances that can counteract or uh, compound these findings, so it's unclear how much the opioid itself contributed. Here's ACOG's stance on it and the clinical pearl. The observed birth defects remain rare and represent a minute increase in the absolute risk. A meta-analysis that compared methadone and buprenorphine found no difference between the groups with respect to congenital malformations, so that is reassuring for those that are seeking to do medication-assisted treatment. So overall, while some studies have shown a potential for birth defects, specifically neural tube defects, there's a lot of confounding that goes on. Well, so the short answer is don't use opioids if you're trying to get pregnant. But if you have to go under treatment, then the use of methadone and buprenorphine does not seem to cause an increase in congenital malformations. Here is why ACOG has made this a point of national attention because opioid use in pregnancy has got issues. One, of course, it's tied to poor prenatal care. There's an increased risk of fetal growth restriction, placental abruption, fetal death, preterm labor, intrauterine passage of meconium, and of course, engagement in other high-risk activities, including unprotected sex, prostitution, and a variety of other substance use and abuse. Pregnant women with opioid use disorder often suffer from co-occurring mental health conditions like depression, a history of trauma or PTSD, and anxiety. And all of these issues raise the risk of polysubstance abuse as well as patient self-harm. All right, now we're talking about MAT. That's M-A-T, Medication Assisted Treatment. Now, according to the College for Pregnant Women with an Opioid Use Disorder, or OUD, we got all these letters going around. So M-A-T, remember, Medication Assisted Treatment for OUD, which is Opioid Use Disorder. For these patients, opioid agonist pharmacotherapy. So that's the key word there, agonist 
is preferred as opposed to medically supervised withdrawal because withdrawal is associated with high relapse rates. So if somebody asks you, why don't we just detox these patients? It's not necessarily that it's going to cause stillbirth or preterm labor, which was the original fear with medically supervised withdrawal. But the truth is more data has shown that those things are actually quite rare. The reason why supervised withdrawal is not favored as the first method for these patients is because they have high relapse rates and exposure to other high-risk behavior. So again, according to the college, for women that have an opioid use disorder, an OUD, opioid agonist pharmacotherapy is recommended. And remember, there's two here, methadone or buprenorphine. And let's get into that next. If you're ever asked on an oral board or by a peer or just a patient or a friend why ACOG supports giving pregnant women methadone or buprenorphine, here's the answer. First, it prevents opioid withdrawal symptoms can lead, that can lead to self-harm. Second, it improves adherence to prenatal care. Third, it reduces the risk of obstetrical complications that may be tied to withdrawal, and again, those are usually linked to other self-destructive behaviors and neonatal abstinence syndrome with a patient who is on a known medication-assisted treatment drug like methadone or buprenorphine can actually be predicted in advance. We can surveil that and we can treat it quicker. And that's opposed to somebody who we don't know has an opioid use disorder and then comes in and the child is diagnosed after the fact. Now, here's another question. Is lactation safe for these two medications, methadone and buprenorphine? Well, the answer is yes. Experts agree that methadone-dependent women or those on buprenorphine who are under a physician's care and who are otherwise drug-free can safely breastfeed without any concern. Now, remember, the allowance of methadone or buprenorphine for breastfeeding is quite different than the FDA restriction, actually a warning, and the notes from ACOG that actually warn patients of breastfeeding from coding drugs or tramadol. Remember that the FDA put that warning out that some women, and we don't know who they are, are rapid opioid metabolizers. That means that when they take codeine, for example, they spike their level of morphine because it's actively converted to the morphine derivative. And in those patients, the baby can have a high rate of morphine pass into the breast milk. So codeine and tramadol, which because of the fear of rapid, ultra-rapid metabolizers of these drugs and breastfeeding, they are not allowed to breastfeed. But methadone and buprenorphine is allowed the breastfeeding designation. All right, let's start wrapping this up. Let's get into methadone. Remember that methadone is a synthetic opioid agonist. It must be dispensed on a daily basis by a registered opioid treatment program. It must be part of a comprehensive addictive care plan. And remember that doses may need to be titrated until the patient is asymptomatic because of the physiological changes uh, and clearance rates in pregnancy. Now, a meta-analysis concluded that the incidence and duration of neonatal abstinence syndrome did not differ based on the maternal dose of methadone treatment. So again, that's a clinical pearl. You shouldn't be afraid of elevating the dose for fear of giving the baby neonatal abstinence syndrome. And meanwhile, the mom is at risk of potential withdrawing. Treat her as needed because neonatal abstinence syndrome is not tied to the specific dose of maternal methadone administration. 
Now, another clinical pearl. Currently, it's illegal for any physician to write a prescription for any opioid other than buprenorphine, and that includes methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder outside of a licensed opioid treatment program. Now, buprenorphine. Now, unlike the other agent, which we talked about, which is methadone, buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist, whereas methadone is a full agonist. Now, buprenorphine makes overdose less likely because of its partial opioid agonist nature. There's fewer drug interactions with this medication, so some prefer this over methadone. There's also an ability to be treated on an outpatient basis without the need for daily visits to an opioid treatment program, so that's attractive for some. There's less need for dosage adjustments throughout pregnancy, and trials demonstrate that there's evidence of less severe neonatal abstinence syndrome with this medication compared to methadone. Now, there have been, because nothing is free, there's rare reports of hepatic dysfunction that have been reported with this medication, but again, that's been rare. This medication may be used either as a monoproduct or in combination formulation with naloxone. Now remember that naloxone is not orally active. So that is put in there into the oral formulation, not because it's going to have an effect, but this is what's interesting. If it's used in a combination, it's actually put there to prevent injection abuse of the medication. So do y'all get that? So buprenorphine can be used by itself or in combination with oral naloxone, and that's to prevent them from firing that up and then liquefying it and then shooting that in. Uh, intravenously. Now, ACOG feels kind of ambivalent about that because if they do do that, it can trigger a quick withdrawal uh, because of the uh, antagonist nature of it. But again, most prefer just the use of buprenorphine as a monoproduct, although it does exist as a combination oral pill with naloxone. All right, podcast family, we're almost done. Now, here's a question that some of you may have. Well, can't we just switch from one agent to another? I mean, if buprenorphine seems to work much better, then why don't we switch methadone to propenorphine? Well, the answer is in that partial agonist nature of buprenorphine. Switching from methadone to buprenorphine can actually be dangerous because it can trigger withdrawal. Methadone users should not transition to buprenorphine because of the significant risk of precipitated withdrawal. But there is not a similar risk of withdrawal when transitioning from buprenorphine as a partial agonist to methadone as a full agonist. This takes us to naltrexone. Now, naltrexone is not naloxone. Don't get those two confused. Naloxone is the rescue medication that's a very quick, reversible opioid antagonist. Now, trexone is also an antagonist, but this is not the same thing as naloxone. So let's talk about naltrexone as a competitive antagonist and its use during pregnancy. Is that allowed? Well, let's get into that next. Currently, naltrexone is not recommended by the American College of OBGYN for use in pregnancy because it requires a 7 to 10 day washout period, again, 7 to 10 days of opioid abstinence, and there's a potential for relapse in that abstinence period, and there's also some concerns for fetal well-being during that time frame, and there's some unknown fetal effects. So historically, ACOG has said no to naltrexone because you can't just start it. Remember, it's an antagonist. You have to allow the patient 7 to 10 days of going drug-free 
either by herself, that's cold turkey, or medically supervised, and then starting now Trexone as a competitive antagonist. Now, it can be used in those who are very self-motivated and wish to eliminate opioid use entirely. But again, we're going to get into some brand new data that was just out January of 2020, just a year ago, that showed that you actually can do this, but it requires very dedicated, very motivated patients, and it requires medical supervision. Now, Trexone does not seem to carry any specific malformation risk, and it does not alter the pregnancy course. Again, so that's reassuring. Now, Trexone is available as an oral as well as an injectable formula. Now, here's a study by Towers et al. from the Gray Journal, that's the American Journal of OBGYN, just one year ago, January 2020. This was a prospectively enrolled study that took a look at pregnant women with opiate use disorder. This wasn't an RCT. It was prospective, but it did compare two groups, those treated with naloxone compared to those treated with traditional MAT. Remember, that's medication-assisted treatment. In this case, it was either methadone or buprenorphine. While 121 patients were treated with naloxone compared to 109 patients treated by the traditional methadone or buprenorphine. Rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome in babies born greater than 34 weeks was significantly lower in naltrexone, which makes sense because they weren't on any kind of opioid at all, right? They were on an antagonist, so that makes sense. But here's what's reassuring. Now, in this very closely monitored and medically supervised group, there were actually no maternal relapses that occurred in the seven-day no-treatment window before the initiation of naltrexone. Also, no cases of spontaneous abortion or stillbirth occurred in either group. And there was no changes seen in fetal heart rate monitoring between the drug initiation of naltrexone compared to traditional MAT. So here's what the authors concluded. The data demonstrate that in pregnant women who choose to completely detox off opioids during pregnancy, that naltrexone can actually be a good choice, but it does require very close supervision. Oh, what does ACOG say? Fantastic study. That's great. Still need more data because long-term follow-up of these mothers and infants is needed to compare their progress with those compared to those that were taken in the traditional MAT group that received methadone ubuprenophene. So yes, there is data for naltrexone and it shows that it can be safe as a competitive antagonist in pregnancy and that women can safely detox off opioids, but it still needs a lot more study and definitely right now is not the preferred treatment because the preferred treatment is still methadone and buprenorphine. As we near the end, a quick word about long-term child data after treatment with methadone or buprenorphine. Well, a major challenge in assessing these outcomes is isolating the effects of opioid agonists from other confounding factors. In general, though, studies have not found significant differences in cognitive development between children up to five years of age that were exposed to methadone in utero and control groups, and the same holds true for buprenorphine. Lastly, regarding neonatal abstinence syndrome, remember that this is a withdrawal of the medication from the baby's system, and they can occur at different times based on which medications were given. So, infants exposed to methadone can have symptoms of withdrawal any time in the first two weeks of life, but it usually appears within 72 hours of birth, and it can last several days to weeks. Again, so for methadone, start thinking about this about 72 hours of life, but anytime within the first two weeks, neonatal abstinence syndrome is fair game. 
that's different than buprenorphine. Infants exposed to buprenorphine may develop abstinence syndromes within 12 to 48 hours of birth with a peak at 72 hours, and then they resolve quickly by seven days. So in other words, there's a quicker uh, withdrawal from buprenorphine than there is from methadone. As a last point, if you're ever asked, is naloxone safe during pregnancy? The answer is not only yes, but hell yeah. I mean, if you have a woman who's overdosing, give her some naloxone if opioids are the cause. Short-acting opioid antagonists rapidly reverse the effects of opioids, and it can be life-saving in the setting of opioid overdose. Now, although induced withdrawal may possibly contribute to some fetal stress, naloxone should be used in pregnant women. In the case of maternal overdose, in order to save the woman's life. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. Hang in there and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.